Hello, friends, and welcome back to Ghoul's Night In, the spooky chat show with your best ghoul friends. I'm Penny Snark. And I'm Midge Munster. And welcome to the Ghoul's Night In holiday special. Holiday special. Oh my gosh. It's time for a crazy Victorian Christmas. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, so I we have talked on the podcast before about the fabulous Victorian tradition of Christmas ghost stories. And we read some Victorian ghost stories last night amongst our friends, and we wanted to share one with all of you as well. Uh, So today we are going to be reading The Kit Bag, uh, which is by Algernon Blackwood, which is an amazing name. name. Ten point name. yeah, Ten point name. (laughs) Um, I skimmed his Wikipedia page, and apparently he lived a wild and crazy life where he was a dairy farmer for a while he was a broadcast journalist but he was also a prolific writer of ghost and horror stories exciting exciting uh so we are going to read this one for you and we hope you enjoy it so midge would you like to get started yeah so i also want to plug we were looking up ghost stories to read and penny found this one online as one of the like more um, short versions that we could easily read on a podcast episode, um, but also that um, we were going to read it off of a computer because we were looking for them online Mm -hmm. and we were like, oh, how are we going to read it on camera? Uh, If we're on our phones, we don't, that's not very Victorian. No, not aesthetic (laughs) at all. So we got very lucky. I own this book, A Very Frightful Victorian Christmas, 12 Ghost Stories, 6 Victorian Recipes by, well, created and compiled by Amanda Woomer, our friend, um, Spook Eats, who we've talked about on the pod before. I bought this at the Haunted America conference this year and luckily the story is in this book so it's meant to be we get to read out of this lovely little book very exciting that that worked out definitely keeps the aesthetic alive (laughs) i guess we should also say if you are listening to the pod right now we are doing something a little special for this episode and live filming for the first time since we recorded our first episode together set yes we are back on camera back on camera so (laughs) if you're watching this on youtube hello welcome um we look very cute and matching in our little sister sister outfits (laughs) in front of our (laughs) beautiful black christmas tree and black mantle so uh if you are not watching that's the scene that you can picture in your head mm-hmm. but if you'd like to see that there will be photos on the instagram as well if you're if you're not watching over on youtube so i'm going to start reading the kit bag by algernon blackwood this story is from 1908 when the words not guilty sounded through the crowded courtroom on that dark cold december afternoon arthur wilbraham leader of the triumphant defense, showed no particular sign that his defense of John Turk, the murderer, on a plea of insanity, had been successful. It's what we expected, I think, Wilbraham muttered, without emotion, and personally, I'm glad the case is over. I'm glad too, said Mr. Johnson, private secretary to Arthur Wilbraham. He had sat in the courtroom for ten days, watching the face of the man who had carried out one of the most brutal and cold-blooded murders in recent years. No man had ever better deserved the gallows. The counsel glanced up at his secretary. They were more than employer-employee. They were, they were friends. Ah, yes, he said with a kind smile. I remember you want to get away for Christmas. You're going to skate and ski in the Alps, aren't you? 
If I were your age, I'd come with you. Johnson laughed. He was a young man of only 26 years, but still had the face of a boy. I can catch the morning boat, he said, but that's not the reason I'm glad the trial is over. I'm glad it's over because I've seen the last of, the man, of that man's dreadful face. It haunted me these last 10 days. That white skin with the black hair brushed low over the forehead, I shall never forget. And the description of the dismembered body and how it was crammed and packed with lime into that... Don't dwell on it, my dear fellow, Wilbraham interrupted, looking at his friend curiously. Don't think about it. Such pictures have a trick of coming back when one least wants them. He paused for a moment. Now go, he added with a smile, and enjoy your holiday. Happy Christmas, and don't break your neck skiing. <laughs> I'd like to go skiing and skating for Christmas. I would too, in the Alps. That sounds beautiful. But this is a, this is quite the setup already. Right? You've got a murder. <laughs> a murderer, a bag full of something. <laughs> Johnson shook hands with him and took his leave. As he reached for the door, he paused and turned suddenly. I knew there was something I wanted to ask you. Would you mind lending me one of your kit bags? Uh, and for anyone who doesn't know, a kit bag is like a duffel bag. Duffel bag. First, so you're picturing Visualizing it. your kit bag. <laughs> it's too late to get one tonight, and I leave in the morning before the shops are open. Of course, Wilbraham nodded. I'll send over Henry, uh, oh, sorry, I'll send Henry over with one of, with, and Midge will try again. Of course, Wilbraham nodded. I'll send Henry over with it to your room. You shall have it the moment I get home. I promise to take great care of it, Johnson said gratefully, delighted to think that within 30 hours, he would be nearing the brilliant sunshine of the high Alps in winter. The thought of that criminal and the court case was like an evil dream in his mind. He stopped for supper and went home to Bloomsbury, where he rented the top floor of one of those old, grim houses with large, cold rooms. The floor below his was vacant and unfurnished, and below that were other lodgers whom he did not know. It was a cheerless place, and he looked forward to a change in scenery. The night was even more cheerless. A cold, sleety rain was driving down with a frigid wind. It howled dismally among the big, gloomy houses, and when he reached his room, he could still hear the whistling and howling over the world of black roofs beyond his window. In the hall, he, he met his landlady, shielding a candle from the draft with her hand. This came by, for, uh, this came by a man from Mr. Wilbraham, sir. She pointed to what must be the kit bag. Johnson thanked her and took it upstairs with him. I shall be going abroad this morning for ten days, Mrs. Monks, he called, out and marched up the stairs. I'll leave an address for any letters. And I hope you have a Merry Christmas, sir, she said in a loud, hoarse voice that suggested spirits. <laughs> and better weather than this, too, she added. I hope so, replied her lodger, shuddering a little as the wind went roaring down the street outside. When he got upstairs, he heard the sleet rapping against the window panes. He put his kettle on to make a cup of hot coffee and then set about packing his kit bag. He liked the packing, for it brought the snowy mountains to his eye mind's eye and made him forget the unpleasant scenes of the past ten days. Johnson looked to the kit bag and his, that his friend had lent him. It was a stout canvas bag, sack-shaped, with holes around the neck for brass bar and padlock. Granted, it was a bit shapeless but not, and not much to look at, but it was deep and wide, 
There was no need to pack carefully. He shoved in his waterproof coat, his fur cap, and his gloves, his skates, his climbing boots, his sweaters, snow boots, and earmuffs. On top of these, he piled his woolen shirts and underwear, his thick socks, and knickerbockers. The dress suit came next, in case he was required to dress for dinner at any point, and then thinking of the best way to pack his white shirts, he paused for a moment. That's the worst part about these kit bags, he mused. Everything wrinkles so easily. Hate when everything wrinkles in your kit bag. I know. Okay, but actually <laughs> this is a, a struggle we know very well uh, as yes. fashion ghouls. <laughs> for sure. I was going to say, we're always ready to dress for dinner. Always. Should the circumstances Should arise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It was after 10 o'clock. A furious gust of wind rattled the windows as though to hurry him up and he pitied the poor Londoners whose Christmas would be spent in such a nasty storm while he would be skiing over snowy slopes in bright sunshine and dancing in the evening with rosy-cheeked girls. He's really rubbing it in. Right? <laughs> ha! That reminded him. He must pack his dancing pumps and evening socks. Of course. He crossed over from his sitting room to the cupboard on the landing where he kept his linens. And as he did so, he heard someone coming up the stairs. He stood still for a moment on the landing, listening. It was Mrs. Monk's steps, he thought. She must be coming up with the last of the post. But then the steps paused suddenly, and he heard no more. They were at least two flights down, and after a moment of thought, he came to the conclusion that the footsteps were too heavy to be those of the old landlady. No doubt they belonged to a lodger coming home late at night who had mistaken his floor for their own. Johnson went into his bedroom and packed his pumps and dress shirts as best he could. The kit bag by this time was two-thirds full and stood upright on its own base like a sack of flour. For the first time, he noticed that it was old and dirty. The canvas faded and worn. It was not a very nice bag to have sent him. Certainly not a new one or one that his friend valued. He gave the matter a passing thought and went on with his packing. Once or twice, however, he caught himself wondering who it could have been wandering down below, for Mrs. Monks had not come up with any letters and that floor below was empty and unfurnished. From time to time, moreover, he was almost certain he heard the soft tread of someone running across the wooden floorboards, cautiously and as quiet as possible. And as time passed, the footsteps grew louder and closer. For the first time in his life, Johnson began to feel frightened. Well, that must be nice <laughs> to have never been frightened before. Oh, to yeah. be a Victorian man. <laughs> yeah, us either. We've never been frightened. Never. Not until I was 26. <laughs> As if to emphasize these eerie feelings, an odd thing happened. As he left the bedroom, having finally packed his white shirts, Johnson noticed the top of the kit bag had fallen over toward him, somehow resembling a human face. The canvas fell into a fold like a nose and a forehead and the brass rings for the padlock perfectly filled the position of the eyes. A shadow, or was it a stain from years of travel, looked like hair. It made Johnson jump, for it was so outrageously like the face of John Turk, the murderer. He <laughs> laughed and went to the front room where the lights were brighter. <laughs> Have y'all ever done that? Like in the dark of the night, you look over at the pile of laundry on your chair right, and, and it's like, like very resembling a human form. <laughs> And you're like, oh. <laughs> uh, where we were. Oh, yes. That horrible case, he thought with a shiver. I cannot get out of London soon enough. The comfort the bright lights of the sitting room brought him only lasted for a moment. 
Again, he heard the stealthy tread of someone on the stairs, much closer than before. This time, he stood up and went out to see who it could be creeping about on the upper staircase at so late an hour. But as soon as he opened the door, the sound ceased, and there was no one on the stairs. Nervously, he tiptoed down the stairs to the floor below and turned on the electric light to make sure that no one was hiding in the empty rooms of the unoccupied suite. There wasn't a piece of furniture large enough to hide even a dog. Then he called over the banister to Mrs. Monks, but there was no answer, and his voice echoed down into the darkness of the house and was lost in the roar of the wind that continued to howl outside. Everyone was in bed and fast asleep, everyone except himself and the owner of this soft and stealthy tread. Must have been my imagination, he thought. It was just the wind after all, although it seemed so real and so close. He returned to his rooms as the clock struck midnight. Realizing just how late it was, he quickly finished his coffee and lit another pipe, the last before heading to bed. It is always difficult to pinpoint the moment when fear begins, <laughs> especially when its cause is unseen to the human eye. Images flash in the mind's eye, piece by piece, slowly and gradually, until those images manifest into a definite emotion, and the mind suddenly realizes what has happened. It was at this moment that Johnson recognized with a start that he felt nervous, frightened. Nothing more than travel nerves, he said out loud, <laughs> and forced himself to laugh. Nothing a little mountain air won't cure. Ah, he added, still talking to himself, that reminds me, my snow glasses. What a silly man. Right? <laughs> He's just having the best time. But things are going things are going downhill for him. Uh, yeah, quickly, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> As he marched quickly from his bedroom toward the sitting room to fetch his glasses from the cupboard, he saw out of the corner of his eye the distinct outline of a figure standing on the stairs a few feet from the landing. They were crouched down with one hand on the banister no. and their face peered up towards the landing. At that same moment, Johnson heard the sound of a shuffling footstep. The person who had been creeping about below all this time had at last come up on his own floor. Who in the world could it be? In what in the world did he want? Johnson gasped and stood still. Then, after a few seconds' hesitation, he found enough courage to turn and investigate. Don't do that, bud. If we've learned one thing from horror never, movies... Never go investigate. Don't go, Just don't. Don't go look to see what the noise was. Just, Just don't do it. Get the heck out of Dodge. <laughs> go to the Alps. <laughs> go to the Alps. <laughs> Ooh, okay. The stairs, he saw to his surprise, were empty. There was no one there. A shiver ran through his body and the muscles in his legs suddenly grew weak. For several minutes, he peered into the shadows at the top of the staircase where he had seen the figure, and then walked quickly, nearly ran into the bright light of the sitting room. He hardly passed through the doorway when he heard someone come up the stairs behind him mm. and went swiftly into his bedroom. It was heavy, but at the same time stealthy footstep, no doubt the tread of someone who did not wish to be seen. It was at this precise moment that the nervousness that Johnson had been feeling up until now leaped the boundary line and entered a state of fear. In no time, Johnson's fear threatened to cross the threshold of terror and possibly even pure horror. <laughs> oh, 
I think we should take a pause and just talk about um, what 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 do we think is happening? Do we think it's actually someone or is his mm. fear playing tricks on him? I think maybe his fear is playing tricks on him. I've definitely talked myself into this before. Oh, yes. oh, home yes. alone on a dark, stormy night. I've convinced myself that there's someone in my house. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have definitely laid awake and see... I think I may have told you this before, but whenever I hear a noise in the night as someone who lives alone, I just try to roll over and go back to sleep because I think that if I'm going to be murdered, I would rather be asleep when it happens. Uh, so that's my hot true crime tip for you. So Johnson so should, he just should just go to bed, go roll just over, go to bed, go lay down. wait for his morning boat to the Alps. And, and if, if he's going to get come? killed, then oh, well, <laughs> he went to sleep dreaming of the Alps. Sage advice from Penny Stark. <laughs> Let's see. I knew there was someone on the stairs, he muttered to himself, his flesh crawling at the idea of someone hiding in his own home. And whoever it was has now gone into my bedroom. His delicate pale face turned pure white, and he hardly knew what to think or do for several minutes. Then he realized that the longer he remained in the sitting room, the more his fear would turn into terror. So he boldly crossed the landing and went straight into the other room where he knew someone was waiting for him. Who's there? He called out loud and made his way into the room. Is that you, Mrs. Monks? He heard his words echo down the empty stairs into the darkness. Who's there? He called again, trying to keep his voice from shaking. What do you want? The curtain swayed ever so slightly and Johnson's heart skipped a beat. He dashed forward and threw them aside. A window streaming with sleet and rain was all that met his gaze. He continued to search the room, the cupboards held nothing but clothes, and under his bed there was no sign of anyone hiding. He stepped back into the middle of the room, and as he did so, stumbled over something. Turning in alarm, he saw the kit bag. That's odd, he thought. That's not where I left it. Mm. A few moments before it had been on his right, between the bed and the bath. He certainly didn't move it. Curious. Very curious indeed. Very curious. <laughs> Very curious. But also, again, you, we've, you've seen the meme about uh, I wouldn't know if there was a ghost because of my ADHD. I'm like, right. surely I didn't leave that there. Well, no. maybe I did. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the horror here is actually neurodivergence. <laughs> the wind roared, dashing a wave of sleet against the window before howling over the rooftops of Bloomsbury. A vision of the channel rose in his mind and brought Johnson back to reality. There's no one here. That's quite clear, he exclaimed out loud. Yet as the words left his mouth, he knew perfectly well that they were not true and he did not believe them himself. He knew someone was hiding, close to him, watching his movements, trying to stop him from packing. That's, he doesn't want him to go to the Alps. That's the motive of this <laughs> intruder. You thought you were going skiing? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. You were too happy about everyone being stuck in London in the bad Period. weather. <laughs> he went back to the sitting room, poked the fire into a blaze, and sat down before it to think. He could, he could find explanations for the mysterious footsteps and even the figure on the stairs, but what made him stop and scratch his head was that blasted kit bag. It had no doubt moved. It was dragged nearer to the door. Outwardly, Johnson remained calm, pretending that everything he witnessed had some sort of natural explanation, or perhaps that this was just the delusions of his tired nerves. 
But in his heart and soul, he knew all along that someone had been hiding downstairs in that empty suite when he came home, that this person had waited for the perfect opportunity to make their way up the bedroom, and that all he saw and heard afterward from the kit bag moving to, well, the other things that this story has to tell, were caused directly by the presence of this mysterious, invisible person. And it was here, just when he desperately wished to keep his terrified thoughts under control, that the vivid pictures from his days spent in the courtroom came to light and were ingrained in his mind's eye. Haunting memories have a way of coming to life when the mind least desires them. In the silence of the night, as one tosses and turns in bed, during those lonely vigils spent by sick and dying beds, and so now, in the same way, Johnson saw nothing but the ugly face of John Turk, the murderer, glaring at him from every corner of his mind. The white skin, those wicked eyes, and the fringe of black hair hanging low over his forehead. Just taking a pause just to make sure we were recording. <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous, he exclaimed, jumping up from his chair. I must finish my packing and go to bed. I'm exhausted. No doubt I'll keep seeing and hearing things all night. But his face was deadly white despite his brave exclamation. He snatched up his glasses and walked across to the bedroom, humming a cheerful tune as he went, a trifle too loud. The instant he crossed the threshold and stood inside his bedroom, his heart froze, and every hair on his head stood up. What's going to happen? can definitely relate to the humming a cheerful tune too loud. Just like, I'm fine. Everything's it's cheery. Nothing's I'm, going on here. I'm not scared. <laughs> All right. Ooh. The kit bag lay in front of him, several feet closer to the door than he had left it. And just over the crumpled top, he saw a pale face slowly sinking down out of sight. It was as though someone was crouching behind it, trying to hide. And at the same moment, Johnson heard a long drawn out sigh hanging in the still air all around him between the gusts of wind outside. A wave of terror came over him. His legs trembled and he fought the hysterical impulse to scream. That sigh seemed to be in his very ear and the air surrounding him still quivered with it. There was no doubt in Johnson's mind. It was a human sigh. Who's there? He was finally able to find his voice, though it came out more like a whisper. He stepped forward so he could see all around the kit bag. Of course, there was no one there. Nothing but the faded carpet and the bulging canvas sides. He threw open the mouth of the sack where it had fallen over. And he saw for the first time that around the inside, some six inches from the top, there ran a broad crimson smear. It was an old faded blood stain. Johnson screamed and drew back from the bag as if he had been burned. At the same moment, the kit bag gave a faint but unmistakable lurch forward toward the door. Johnson collapsed backwards, searching with his hands for something to support himself. The door, farther behind him than he realized, caught him just in time to prevent him from falling and slammed with a resounding bang. At the same moment, his left arm swung out, accidentally shutting off the electric switch, <laughs> plunging the room into darkness. No! It was a most disagreeable predicament. <laughs> and if Johnson had not kept his wits about him, he might have done all manner of foolish things. Somehow, he managed to pull himself together and groped furiously for the little brass knob to turn the light on again. But the rapid closing of the door had caused the coats hanging on it to swing back and forth, 
and his fingers became tangled with the sleeves and pockets, so it was some moments before he found the switch. In those few moments of bewilderment and terror, two things happened that sent him deep into the region of genuine horror. He distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavily across the floor, and close in front of his face, he once again heard the sound of someone sighing. In those few seconds of desperation, as he searched for the light switch, Johnson had time to realize that he dreaded the return of the light, <laughs> and that it might be better for him to stay hidden in the merciful darkness. He's, he's with me. <laughs> he's got you, yeah. He's got me. Uh, but this fearful thought barely crossed his mind before he found the brass knob, and the room was flooded with light once more. His fears had been right, though. It would have been better for him to have stayed in the shelter of the darkness. For there, right before him, bending over the half-packed kit bag, clear as life in the merciless glare of the electric light, stood the figure of John Turk, the murderer. The man stood not three feet from him. The fringe of black hair hung against the pale forehead, as vivid as Johnson had seen him in the courtroom. We marked this to switch over, but this is basically the end, so maybe I'll just keep... Just you want me it. to... go? We're going to go full scent. In a flash, Johnson realized what it all meant. The dirty and much-used bag, the smear of crimson within the top, the dreadful stretched condition of the bulging sides. He recalled how the victim's body had been stuffed into a canvas bag, the dismembered pieces stuffed with lime into a bag. This very bag that had been produced as evidence. As quietly as he could, Johnson groped behind him for the doorknob. But before he could turn it, the very thing he feared most came about, and John Turk lifted his devil's face and looked at him. In the same moment, that heavy sigh rang through the room once more and whispered, It's my bag, and I want it. All Johnson. You can have it, right? It's like I don't want oh, it. No, thank you. I will take something else to the Alps, please. Yeah. Uh. I don't want your murder sack, John. All Johnson remembered was clawing the door open and then falling into a heap upon the landing as he tried frantically to make his way to the sitting room. He remained unconscious for some time, and it was still dark when he opened his eyes and realized that he was lying on the cold floorboards, stiff and sore. Then the memory of what he had seen rushed back into his mind, and he promptly fainted again. <laughs> These delicate Victorian right? <laughs> when he woke a second time, the wintry dawn was just beginning to peek through the windows, painting the stairs a cheerless, dismal gray, and he managed to crawl into the sitting room and cover himself with an overcoat in the armchair, where at last he fell asleep. I would not just fall asleep after that. I guess pure, pure exhaustion maybe just this took him over. <laughs> a great clamor woke him up. He recognized Mrs. Monk's voice echoing through the apartment right away. What? You ain't been to bed, sir? Are you ill or has something happened? Her voice blew louder as she entered the room. And there's a gentleman here to see you, though it ain't seven o'clock yet. He says it's urgent. I'm all right. Thank you, Mrs. Monks, he stammered. Who is it? Someone from Mr. Wilbram's office, and he says he ought to see you quick before you go away for the holiday. I told him. Show him up, please, at once, said Johnson, whose head was whirling and still filled with dreadful visions of the long night. Mr. Wilbram's man came in offering his apologies and explained briefly and quickly that an absurd mistake had been made and that the wrong kit bag had been sent over the night before. 
Henry somehow got hold of the one that came over from the courtroom. And Mr. Wilbraham only realized it when he saw his own lying in his room and asked why it had not gone to you, the man said. I'm afraid he must have brought you the one from the murder case instead, the man continued, without any emotion on his face. Shucks, fella. (laughs) The one John Turk packed the dead body in. (laughs) Mr. Wilbraham is quite upset about it, sir, and told me to come over first thing this morning with the right one as you were leaving by boat. He pointed to a clean-looking kit bag on the floor, which he had just brought. I'm to bring the other one back, sir, he added casually. Yeah. <laughs> For a few moments, John could not, Johnson could not find his voice. At last, he pointed in the direction of his bedroom. Would you be kind enough to unpack it for me? Just empty the things out onto the floor. The man disappeared into the other room and was gone for only five minutes. Johnson heard the shifting of the bag and the rattle of the skates and boots being unpacked. Thank you, Mr. Johnson, the man said, returning with the bag folded over his arm. Can I do anything more to help you, sir? What is it? Johnson asked, seeing that the man still had something he wished to say. The man shuffled and looked mysterious. Beg pardon, sir, but knowing your interest in the Turk case, I thought you'd like to know what's happened. Yes? John Turk killed himself last night with poison, immediately upon his release, and he left a note for Mr. Wilbraham saying he'd be much obliged if they'd have him buried, same as the woman he murdered in the old kit bag. What time? When did he do it? Johnson was almost too afraid to ask. I believe it was 10 o'clock last night. Have you ever had a ghost come to try and crawl inside his murder duffel bag? I'm, I was wondering what the twist was going to be because at first I thought maybe he had like a... Yeah. Well, I guess he because well, they free, released though. him. Yeah. He okay. So he the the thought was that he could have been there. Been there creeping. But I was thinking when he was like slinking and he kept crouching behind things, I was like, well, surely a, a human form can't hide yeah. behind a duffel bag. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a ghost. Ooh, that was a good one. Yeah, I liked that one a lot. <laughs> that was very spooky. Oh my gosh. We've read uh, a few now over the last couple days, and there was this was probably. Mm, this is tied for my favorite. We also read another one that was uh, about like a, a woman and her child that had died in the snow. Yes. Uh, I believe that one's called The Nursemaid's Tale. The nursemaid's if anyone tale is looking it up. It is also very, very good. Um, so I, I can see where if this was Victorian times and it is very little like we have basically candlelight to go mm-hmm. by and it's dark and it's winter and you're in these big like drafty old houses how that would be very very spooky yes oh my <laughs> gosh to just curl up with your blankets and read a scary story on a wintry night it's, i love it it's very good well this was our little christmas treat uh, for all of our ghouls out there uh, so we are going to be taking a break and be back in the new year yes uh, so we will be back soon with all sorts of spooky tales of our own um, <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us for this spooky victorian tale and for having a little dark victorian christmas celebration yes with your ghoul friends <laughs> And thank you all for a wonderful year of Ghoul's Night In. We have appreciated everything you've done 
for us this year, all the reviews you've left, all the comments you've shared. Uh, it just means the world to us. So we hope you have a very happy holiday, however you celebrate. And we'll see you in 2024. Yes. Uh, if you want to follow along with us, you can find us on Instagram at Ghoul's Night in Pod. And you can find me all over the internet at Penny Snark. And you can find me all over the web at Midge Munster. And until next time, goodbye. goodbye.